I invite you to turn your Bible, if you have a Bible, with me to Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can listen. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, He handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, 
This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it secure as you know how. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Amen. This is God's word. Could we pause and pray and ask that the Spirit of God would help us now to reflect on what we've just read. And so we pause, gracious Spirit of God, gift of the Father and the Son. And we know that we can read the Bible, we can hear it read, we can hear of this account of the sufferings of our Lord. But unless you apply these truths and a sense of them to our hearts, it's in vain. So, we humbly ask, one, the one who gave us this text, please show us now something more of our Lord Jesus, that we may love him more. In his name we ask, amen. As we have together as a church gone through the Gospel of Matthew, off and on now for a few years. It sounds terrible when I say that. It hasn't been every single Sunday for years on years, but it has been a while that we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things we've learned is that Matthew, like the other Gospels, but especially the Gospel of Matthew, has an emphasis on demonstrating how Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the prophecies given in the Old Testament. So as you're reading through Matthew, you're finding reference to an Old Testament scripture after an Old Testament scripture after an Old Testament scripture. And particularly as we come to the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the sufferings, death, burial, resurrection, we find even more allusions to and quotes of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of the Gospel of Matthew, is at pains for all who read to understand that this Jesus in this kind of 
backwater town named Nazareth. I like to joke a little bit like Loudon, where I grew up. Uh, at least I guess people knew Nazareth. They didn't have you know anything notable like that in Nazareth. Just a country town. Okay, Barnstead, Pittsfield. You know, I mean, no offense, but you go around the world, say you're from there. They say what? You know, you have to say, oh, Boston. Oh, Boston. Oh, okay. This Jesus from Nazareth, the Holy Spirit is trying to demonstrate, is in fact the promised, long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, the descendant of David, the son of God. And we've seen, as we've come to the sufferings of Jesus, that Isaiah 53, in particular, is referenced to here in the arrest, the sufferings, and death of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, I want to read two verses and just as the setting for our understanding the, the account of Christ's burial, Isaiah 53, verse 8, we're told, By oppression and judgment, he, that is the servant, the Messiah, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's referring to his arrest. And as for his generation, who considered that he, the Messiah, was cut off out of the land of the living? That for the transgression of my people, striking was due him. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. When Jesus yields up his spirit, there we have the fulfillment of he was cut off from the land of the living. He really died. His life was not taken from him. Notice that the text says he yielded up his life. Jesus had said, no one takes my life. I lay it down for my sheep. He was sovereign king on the cross. He gave his life. It was not taken from him. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. We now come in the consideration tonight in verse 57 to the consideration of the burial of Christ. And here too, scripture must be fulfilled. Now, I need to note that tonight I'm not going to really comment on verses 55 and 56. It notes that many women were looking on from a distance uh, all we'll notice is notice that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they're there when Jesus dies. Verse 61, they're there when Jesus is buried. And then when we come to chapter 28 in the resurrection, there they are. And I find it remarkable, don't you, that God in his kindness honored these godly Christ-loving women by making them in the culture of the day that did not respect women as really co-heirs and fellow image bearers in Christ and before God, that God sets these women throughout the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the primary witnesses. And it's really quite beautiful. So I just want to note that. I don't want to skip over that. And they are in our consideration tonight, but I want you to see their role there. They're, They're there when Jesus yields up his spirit They're there when he's buried, and they're there when he rises. But let's come now to the burial. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him when he died. He believed the scriptures adamantly. He knew that he would suffer unjustly. He knew that he would die with wicked men. And Isaiah 53 said that his grave was assigned with wicked men. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, on a Roman cross, between two true thieves, two thugs, everybody knew that these three guys were not only going to suffer terribly on one of the most cruel forms of execution ever designed, but upon their death, whenever that would happen, they would not receive an honorable burial. Their bodies would be cast like dung into a valley or into a big hole with other common criminals. 
Jesus, everybody watching this crucifixion assumed that this Jesus of Nazareth, because he was a sinner like these other sinners, would receive a dishonorable burial. And this was a big deal in that time, in that culture, because in that culture, in that time, there was a more different view of the body, maybe that's common in our day. There was a high view of the body, and when people died in Jewish culture, there was a real concern for how the body was treated and how the body would be buried This came out of a a belief in the resurrection. Not all Jews, we know the Sanhedrin didn't believe in the resurrection, but, but certainly even through Job, Job, that great man of God of old, though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh I shall see the Lord. Joseph, remember Joseph in Egypt? And when his brothers come and, and God used Joseph to provide a place where, where, His father and his brothers would be saved. But before Joseph died, we learn in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, he made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And he died at the age of 110. They embalmed him. He was placed in a coffin. And then many years later, we learn that Moses, hundreds of years later, grabbed the bones of Joseph and brought them with them into the wilderness. The bones of Joseph went around in the wilderness all those years and eventually made their way up to Shechem, where they were buried in a cave. There was a biblical concern out of a belief that God made us soul and body for what happened to the body. I am a little concerned in in our day we... We tend to just kind of have a low view of the body, almost like it's nothing. It's not everything. We either overemphasize it or we underemphasize it. But in this culture, it was, it was very serious. What happened to your body when you died? To, to be cast on the earth or just in a common grave would be unthinkable. It was a desire that you'd be buried in a place that would be honorable and perhaps surrounded by the remains, the bones of, of your fathers and mothers and grandparents and family, all with a mind to the belief that one day God would raise the dead. As I said, Job nineteen twenty five. Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my flesh is destroyed, my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And so an expression of honor to a deceased person would be to treat their body with honor. To see to the care and to the burial of the deceased body was an act of love. I have a dear friend who was uh, for years uh, an assistant uh, to a funeral director in Maine, where I pastored for years. And, of course, uh, as, as he's a close friend, I, I, I couldn't help but ask him some questions about the kind of the inside uh, workings of a funeral home and, and uh, some things you don't want to know. <laughs> that was an honorable practice. Um, but, you know, he, he, he shared some things with me. And one of the interesting things that my friend shared with me is that out of all of the practices he observed, this was his opinion, is that a conservative Jewish uh, burial, he found the most moving because the, I'm not saying we should all do this, I'm just, the loved ones would come and they would wash the body of the deceased within 24 hours, that body would be buried. There was none of the process uh, of whether it be um, a modern embalming process or, um, any kind of cremation. He just said he respected how they treated the body. That just, I use that example simply to help us maybe understand that, that for them, this, this was what happened to the body was very important. And here are these women who are disciples of Jesus. They are godly women. They have 
been ministers in the sense that they have been ministry partners. They have, we're told in the Gospels that they supported Jesus and the other apostles, disciples. I mean, someone had to cook, someone had to provide for funds and take care of the details. And, and these were devoted, godly women. And as they're watching on the death of Jesus, it's interesting that the other disciples aren't there except for maybe John. And even John maybe isn't there at the very last But John and these women are the only ones there who love Christ. And they're looking on helplessly. Because as Jesus yields up his spirit around 3 p.m., it seemed that there was none that loved him. And it seemed that no one would take care of his body. They, They just expected, there they are watching helplessly as he suffers brutally then he yields up his spirit they're witnessing all these amazing things that are going on but these women are deeply burdened what is going to happen to the body of our lord hanging up on that roman cross it breaks their hearts to think that what he's gone through but the idea that he's just going to be cast into some pit with those two thugs on either side of him is beyond what they can imagine And so the body of the Messiah, the King of Israel, hung lifeless on a Roman cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Think of that for a moment. The son of David, the descendant, the promised Messiah, the very long-awaited king, while others are wrapping up the worship in the temple on the feast of the Passover, as the day is coming to the close, the true King of Israel pinned like a piece of meat to a cross just outside the wall of his own capital city. And he was seemingly destined to be tossed like refuse into a pit where other wicked men would be thrown. But God had planned long ago for the burial of his beloved and honored son. As we've heard already tonight, God had seen to it that through Isaiah the prophet, it was revealed that the Messiah, the Son, this Jesus, would be with a rich man in his death. Now, someone hearing that prophecy initially from Isaiah uh, perhaps couldn't have comprehended what that might mean. But God had called it through Isaiah nearly 600 and 50, I'm sorry, almost 800 years before the birth of Christ, that somehow the Messiah would be with a rich man in his death. And then, after hundreds of years, with the coming of the Messiah, the life of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, God opened up the heart of a rich man. Matthew's gospel is the only one that records this fact about Joseph. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man. Now, why is Matthew highlighting that? Isaiah 53. He wants us to know this Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man who had also become a disciple of Jesus. And it's a reminder for us that while God has a particular compassion and a heart for the poor, we know that through the teaching of our Lord, it's a reminder to us that God redeems men and women from every walk of life, rich and poor. And that God has a purpose for wealth and for poverty Not only was Joseph a man of means, he was, we're told by Mark, he was a prominent council member. Wow. That means among those who had been those leading in the arrest of Jesus and calling for his own murder among the chief priests in the council, Joseph was a prominent council member, not just, you know, one of the group. And Luke tells us that Joseph had not consented to their vicious and illegal actions towards Jesus. 
He was a disciple of Jesus. And Luke 23, verse 50 tells us he was a good and righteous man. What a great description to be a good and righteous man. And his, this good and righteous man proved his character in his actions. We also learn from the Gospels that he was looking for the kingdom. He was a religious leader who was actually truly looking for the kingdom of God, not just concerned like the other guys, most of them with his own position. He was like Nicodemus, who we'll learn more about in a moment, one of the few in the religious elite and leadership of Jerusalem that took the scriptures seriously and humbly was anticipating their fulfillment. And when Joseph, at some point along the way, Joseph of Arimathea had seen this Jesus of Nazareth, had heard him teach, maybe had witnessed some of his miracles, Joseph of Arimathea was convinced he had seen his king. He had seen his king. But to come out and confess that this Jesus was in fact the Messiah, well, that would cost him everything. And so we learn that he was a disciple in secret, like Nicodemus. And he had not been able to keep back the forces that were moving quickly and and forcibly to arrest and murder Jesus. But now with his Lord dead and hanging shamefully on a cross outside of Jerusalem, Joseph of Arimathea would not permit the body of Jesus to be dishonored any further. He would be risking his position, his reputation, his livelihood, his family relations, risking inflicting scorn on his family members, and maybe even risking his own life. But his love for and his faith in Jesus moved Joseph to act. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, quote, gathered up courage and went to Pilate. Gathered up courage. For all he knew, his fate could be the same as what he had just witnessed Jesus' experience. So he went to Pilate. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Pilate, when Joseph of Arimathea went in, it's late on the day on Friday, he goes to Pilate. Pilate, we're told by Mark, was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion was designed cruelly over the centuries to be a form of execution that would inflict the most pain possible for the longest period of time. A victim on a cross suffering brutally would suffer sometimes for days on end before they would expire. So Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was dead already by four or 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He asked the centurion, likely the same centurion that was overseeing the death of Jesus, the same centurion who in the Gospel of Matthew we read tonight, at the end of it with the other men there confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. That centurion says to Pilate, yes, he's dead. And so Pilate granted permission to Joseph Now, I I maybe hadn't considered this before. I don't know if you had, but Pilate didn't know that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the council. For all Pilate knew, Joseph of Arimathea was simply representing the will of the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. 
you get in a sense of even more of the risk that Joseph of Arimathea is taking. He's known, well known as a prominent member of the ruling council in Jerusalem. He has the nerve to go on his own without conduct consulting the council to ask Pilate for the body. And Pilate has really been under the gun. Remember that Pilate was a, a, a cruel man. He was a thuggin of sorts, kind of like a mafia boss, but he was a representative of Rome, and he had already been a little heavy-handed with the Jews, and they had complained to Caesar, and Caesar had already given Pilate a slap on the hand, meaning, you better watch it down there, Pilate, or else I'll call you back to Rome, and usually when you get Paul back to Rome, it's not a good thing for your head. So Pilate was in a, walking a tightrope politically, and the council in Jerusalem, part of the reason they were able to get Jesus crucified is this political undertow, this threat, this context, that if Pilate didn't give in to them, they would work to report back to Caesar. And remember, the card that they played is Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate, in so many words, if you don't let, the, if you don't crucify this guy, word will make its way back to Caesar that you'd let another claimant to the throne take Caesar's place. So they were working Caesar over, I'm sorry, Pilate over, and, and he was in a political conundrum. And here, for all he knows, Joseph is, is requesting on behalf of the council for the body of Jesus, and so he just capitulates, he gives in, he acquiesces and gives him the body. Joseph's move was bold. The rest of the council certainly would not have approved. And in fact, the next day, when they found out, <laughs> the text doesn't tell us, but they likely are absolutely incensed and, and livid. And you can see their alarm that this Jesus actually received a proper burial, so his body is in a certain place, and now his body can be taken, and they are beside themselves. So Joseph's move was bold, and when they found out, Joseph would be condemned by the others as a traitor. But at that moment, late in the afternoon, what we would call afternoon, the rest of the council and the rest of them were preoccupied with the ending of the day's worship in the temple with Passover and all that went together with that, and they were preparing for the coming of the Sabbath, which would come with, with suns, the sunset. Was, their Sabbath began in the evening. And so everybody was preoccupied, either with wrapping up the day's worship, the, the greatest feast day, the Passover of the year, or they were getting ready for what was considered to be the greatest Sabbath day of the year. And so they were preoccupied. So Joseph moved quickly. He didn't have much time. Where Pilate was in his residence was not far likely from where Christ was crucified. Pilate's residence would have been inside the city wall, Jesus crucified right outside. So Joseph goes in, is able to obtain audience with Pilate, goes back out, and there he is. And it's interesting to think that as Joseph wants to take care of the body of Jesus, now hanging on the cross late in the day, that the centurion and the others who confessed Jesus as the Son of God, that perhaps it's these very men as their first act of worship that lift the Savior's cross out of the ground, helping Joseph. We don't know that for sure, but doubtless the centurion was there, and Joseph is there. They raise the cross out of the ground. They lift this heavy beam back down to the ground. And then Joseph of Arimathea begins the grisly work of removing the nails from the wood, the wrists, and the ankles of Jesus. There's not much time. The day is coming to a close. Sabbath is quickly upon them. They can't violate the Sabbath. And so Joseph has to move quickly he is helped in his work, perhaps not only by the centurion in terms of at least getting the body down, but we also learn in the scriptures that he was joined by another unexpected and secret disciple named Nicodemus. 
Apparently, while Joseph had been asking Pilate for the body, Nicodemus had acquired a large and expensive quantity of spices. And like Joseph, Nicodemus, remember who had come to Jesus at night, and Jesus had said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, that Nicodemus. Again, another secret disciple. He was afraid. He was also among the leaders, the religious leaders. And like Joseph, he's done with being a secret disciple of Jesus. Both these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, are exposing themselves to untold suffering. They don't care. They believe Jesus is their Lord, crucified or not. And so then quickly... Joined by Nicodemus, perhaps some of Joseph's servants because he was a rich man. We don't know. But they quickly moved the body of Jesus, lifted the body of Jesus. Can you imagine whether it be Joseph or Joseph and Nicodemus lovingly taking this brutalized, butchered body that they had, as best they could, wrapped in a linen cloth and bringing this body carefully, not far, apparently, we're told, to where Joseph, verse 60, had his own tomb. Again, for the Jews to have a place for your body to be laid when you died was so important. And the more wealthy and the more important you were, the more significant your tomb would be. And these tombs can be found outside of Jerusalem to this day. And so this apparently was a brand new tomb. No one else had used it. It was a beautiful tomb. This is a rich man. This is a tomb fit for a king. It's nothing for him to use his tomb that he'd prepared and spent a lot of money on for his Lord. The women who were disciples of Jesus were witnessing all of this. They must have been so confused. After all, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these two men, for all they knew, were part of the group that had Jesus crucified in the first place. Must have caused them great confusion. What are they doing taking care of our Lord? Wrapping him so carefully, why are they laying him in this tomb? But we're told there that, verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there. I mean, they, they were going to follow the body of their Lord wherever it went. Didn't matter who you were. They maybe couldn't fight the Roman soldiers, but they could follow their Lord. They could stick with him no matter what was going on. And the other Mary that was sitting there opposite the grave, they saw where Joseph and where Nicodemus laid the body of their Lord, and they had every intention, as soon as the Sabbath was over, of going back and fixing what the men had done. <laughs> Anybody ever experienced that? That, that? that doesn't ever happen. The ladies never have to fix what, you know... You, you guys tried, but let us take care of this. That's, that's kind of what's going on Easter Sunday morning when the Marys are going back. I mean, Nicodemus had a lot of money and a lot of pounds of spice, and the Jews would wrap a body and, and uh, wrap in the layers of the spice to, to keep down the odor and as a sign of love and of honor, and they had their own spices, and Maybe they weren't going to completely undo what Joseph of Arimathea did, but, you know, they were just going to help a little bit. They were there. They knew where the body of Jesus was laid. But evening was upon them, and the Sabbath, when travel and work were prohibited. And so the longing of these women there at the tomb to tend to the body of Jesus and to see to it that he had a proper burial would have to wait until the first day of the week. Oh, those were the longest hours of all the disciples' lives. But those women that so loved their Lord, torn by grief, but just yearning to get back to the tomb so that they could properly honor their Lord and Master. Well, we learn in verse 62 that on the next day, the day after the preparation, this is the Sabbath day, the priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Now, wait a minute. If you're reading along, you're, you're noticing several details. First of all, the chief priests and the Pharisees usually hate each other's guts. 
These two guys, the Pharisees, are the religious legalists, if you want to call them that, and they believe in the resurrection. The chief priests and the Sanhedrin, they're the more political. You might say they're kind of like the conservative and liberal branches of, of, uh, of the Jewish, Jewish uh, religion. They normally can't stand each other, but they're united. And it's a Sabbath day. They don't really go anywhere and they certainly if they don't go if they go anywhere they don't go to visit a pagan gentile and thereby make themselves unclean but this time the last time they went to see Pilate they waited outside for Pilate to come out to them but this time they are in such a fuss that they go together with Pilate. They go right in to see Pilate. They don't care if it's the Sabbath. They don't care if they're going to be defiled. There is something that's got to be done. They are adamant. Something's going to, some, they're going to, this, this deceiver, they call him. Notice they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. This deceiver once said, we remember that he once said that he would, after three days, rise again. So they are livid, and they demand of Pilate that the tomb be guarded. Pilate must have had some pleasure. He couldn't stand these guys. Remember, they had been playing him. Remember that they had pressed him into a position. He he was guilty. I'm not saying he's innocent. He tried to wash his hands. He was guilty. He should have stood up, but they were... They were bringing on the political heat on him, and, and he despised them. So imagine Pilate's delight when he learned and figured out that Joseph of Arimathea actually hadn't been their representative, but had actually done something that they really didn't want him to do. Oh, that must have given him great pleasure. But they demanded, verse 64, give orders that the grave be made secure, and because he still had to please them, he granted their request. They called Jesus a deceiver. They attempted to make sure that no one would ever think that this Jesus rose from the dead. But in God's sovereign triumphant irony, by their actions of securing a guard for the tomb, all they did was provide yet more evidence and proof of the veracity, the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. They tried to undo Jesus' credibility, and all they do is add to it. But for now... The body of the king lay in a kingly tomb. And he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea wasn't in the tomb dead with him, but Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, is the man that Matthew says was the lead in burying the body of Christ in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. Amazing. In closing, we understand from the scriptures that the death of Jesus Christ is absolutely pivotal to the gospel, the good news for sinners. When Paul the Apostle describes the gospel, the good news in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it the gospel. He says, it is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. The fact that Christ was buried proved that he was dead. He didn't just faint. He didn't just swoon. He truly died. He truly entered the grave. His death on the cross 
is the means by which God dealt with our sins. Isaiah 53 tells us that. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment for our sins fell upon Jesus. And we've learned that when he cried, it is finished, that it was a cry not of expiration, of weariness. I'm done. But a cry of victory. He had accomplished redemption for his people. The angel had said to his parents that they were to call his name Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. And it's by his cross work bearing the penalty, the wrath of God for our sins that Jesus provided for our sins to be removed. For all who call upon him to be saved because our sin, all of it, our shame, all of our guilt, the things we've done, the things we shouldn't have done but we didn't do, Jesus bore it all. Jesus paid it all as we sing sing so often that beloved him. His cross deals with our sin. But even his burial was part of his redemptive work. And there's so much to consider here, all about the cross, and that's why we'll never, never, ever exhaust the significance and the meaning of Christ crucified. But just one pastoral thought in closing. It was an awful, bloody scene, and death is terrible. Christ's death was a victorious death, but the Bible is, is very honest about death. It doesn't try to cover over it with lies, of course. It, it, it tells it like it is, and death is by nature our enemy. And... We would otherwise fear the grave. But when we who believe in Jesus, and I hope you do, and if you're here tonight and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, what a great day to do that. Because we too are going to die, likely, unless Jesus comes first. You know that, right? I'm dying. Are you? Uh, some of you are thinking, pastor's dying? Yes, yeah, I am. I had a little chunk of skin taken out by the doctor the other day, you know, looking, checking out, you know, you got to look for that kind of thing. Skin cancer happens when you get older. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's benign. I'm good. But some of you are thinking, oh, you're, you're not dying. No, no. What you mean is, what you, what you mean when you say you're dying, Pastor, is you maybe have 20, 25 years or so, but you're really not sure. You could get hit with a car or you could get cancer and die at any moment of just about any kind of disease. Or you live in a world that you could be shot and be murdered or be hit by a car, but you don't really mean you're dying. Okay. <laughs> We're so weird about it, aren't we? We live in a world where death reigns for now. And we all die. It's not scare tactic or any kind of manipulation. It's just the way it is. Some of you right now are very sensitive to this because there's some loved ones that really are perhaps in their last moments right now. The Bible faces death squarely. And this pastoral thought in closing is that when we acknowledge our sin and that the wages of sin is death and that we rightly deserve death and to be condemned, 
that when we trust in Jesus, we trust in the one who died for our sins, who was buried and who rose again so that all believe in him, who believe in him will have everlasting life. And we who believe, like Joseph and Nicodemus and those dear godly women, when we who believe die and we face the prospect of our bodies being placed in the grave, whatever kind of grave it is, we go into our death as believers, knowing my body is going to go in a tomb and a grave. And we die knowing our bodies are going to go in the tomb and the grave and knowing our king has been there before us. And so now the grave, the tomb, the casket, the pit is for we who believe in Jesus Christ Just the path, just the path that our Lord is leading us on victoriously. Just a place of transition, just a holding place until one day that body once again hears the voice of its king and redeemer and is remade and rises and is rejoined with your spirit, incorruptible, no more to die forever in the presence of your Lord. Jesus made the grave a holy place. He consecrated the grave as a transition to glory. So let's join these godly women, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and worship Jesus. Let's pray. So we do that now, Lord. We have tried tonight to reflect for a few moments on the glory of your cross, the wonder of your death. We love you, and more than that, we're in awe that you love us. So as we come now in a few moments to the table, we pray that this would be a very truly sweet time of communion with the one who has conquered the grave on our behalf. Be honored, we ask in Jesus, your name. Amen.